Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. On occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Indo-Daily was first broadcast in September 2022. Just a warning that this podcast contains graphic descriptions of extreme violence that some people may find upsetting. Davidson County, 911, what is the address of your emergency? Limerick man Jason Corbett and his wife Molly Martins appeared to be living the all-American dream in North Carolina. But then came the nightmare for the Corbett family of August 2nd, 2015. Um... My name is Tom Martins. I'm at 160 Panther Creek Court. My uh, daughter's husband, um, my son-in-law, got in a fight with my daughter. I intervened, and I I think um, he's in bad shape. Okay, what do you mean he's in bad shape? He's hurt? He's bleeding all over, and I, I may have killed him. I'm Fionn Sheen, and today on the Indo-Daily, we go to the North Carolina courtroom where Molly and Tom Martins have been sent for a retrial for the murder of Jason Corbett. Brad, tell us about Molly Martins' background and then how did she come to meet Jason Corbett? Yeah, Mo- Molly Martins was the daughter of, of, of Tom Martins, who at the time was a serving FBI agent. She was born in Knoxville in Tennessee, uh, was very much, I mean, in, in her younger years, was you could very much describe her as like the all-American girl. She was involved in lots of sporting activities. Um, it was hoped that she would go to one of the top uh, U.S. colleges. Unfortunately, in her latter teens, things really went off the rails a little bit. I, I, there seemed to be mental health problems developed. She suffered a lot from depression. She did go to university, but she dropped out after a year. And while very few people, I think, outside the immediate family knew it, she began to retreat at times into almost an imaginary world. And she found it easier, apparently, to deal with the challenges of life by simply making up stories, almost like a Walter Mitty type thing. And in a way, that's what kind of led her to to meet the, the, the fateful meeting with Jason Corbett. Molly um, struggled to hold down a series of jobs and she was just coming out of a very, very bad bout of depression as she was engaged at the time to a, a, a very, very nice man who worked in the aviation industry, a guy called Keith McGinn. She was coming out of this depression and suddenly hit on this idea that she'd be much happier if she was looking after children. She loves children and she thought if I was a nanny or something like that, I'd be much happier. And really without telling him, she started looking for ads to see where were there opportunities to work as a nanny. Now, bear in mind, she had no qualifications. And unfortunately, she struck upon an ad that had been put in a newspaper by Jason Corbett, who had very tragically lost his first wife, Margaret Mags Fitzpatrick, to a freak asthma attack in November 2006. And Mags died when her 
daughter, Sarah, was literally just seven weeks old. And Jason was left with two children, both aged under two years. Uh, Jack, his son, and Sarah, his daughter, trying to look after them. And that's when he went looking for a nanny. And (laughs) for a, a fateful moment, Molly Martins entered their lives. And Jason's background, uh, then obviously his his life changed dramatically uh, with the with the passing of his wife. But quite a quite a successful executive in his own right. For Jason, everything he had, he really had to work very hard for. Now he was from a very very tight knit family uh, in Limerick. Um, he was brought up. He d- didn't go to third level. He went straight into a factory job. But I think it's a measure of the man that he wasn't content to just do a factory job for the rest of his life. He went in, he did training courses, he went to night school, he did lots of things to try and improve himself and gradually was promoted right up the ranks of the company he worked for, which was in the whole packaging sector. Um, He met, fell in love with uh, Mags um, Fitzpatrick. It was very much a love match. Um, They got married, they built a house just on the outskirts of Limerick and everything seemed golden for the couple, unfortunately, until that November evening when Mags was at home and Mags's sister was staying with Jason and and uh, Mags at the time and the Mags had gone to bed and Jason was just about to go to bed finishing the washing up and Mags alerted her sister and her husband that she was getting an asthma attack unfortunately like unlike previous asthma attacks this one couldn't be controlled um, and Jason in desperation put her in his car drove to try and meet the ambulance which was coming from University Hospital Limerick and his wife stopped breathing in the car he had to pull the car to the side of the road he did emergency CPR he got her to the paramedics he managed to get her back breathing the paramedics were working on her unfortunately she stopped breathing in the ambulance en route to University Hospital Limerick they couldn't save her so she she died and it really shattered his world his family rallied around but I think a measure of his recovery was that after about six months to 12 months he decided that it was time he got more independent in his life and that he wasn't entirely dependent on childminding duties on his family so he decided to get um, an au pair or a nanny that's when he put the ad in for a long-term nanny and that's when he met Molly Martins and from there then, effectively, Jason Corbett, a second life was, was rebuilt effectively around Molly. Yes, very, very quickly, um, Molly became an integral part of this small family. And Jason's own family initially were very supportive of her. They were very glad to see that he was happy. They felt that Molly looked after the children very well, that she was, at some times, they thought that she was overly um, dependent on the children that Molly would prefer the company of the children almost than to other adults. Um, but over time, I think they became, became quite concerned because they, they realized that Molly, it wasn't just an employer-employee relationship, that there was a romantic relationship had very quickly developed between Molly and between Jason. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that Molly at this stage was in her mid-20s. She was a very, very attractive girl. She had flowing blonde hair, quite a vivacious personality. When she chose to, she could, you know, enchant everyone in her company. But there were other times where she was aloof, where she really didn't want to get involved with any of Jason's friends. And she was happiest when she was left alone with uh, Jack and Sarah. The relationship was a little rocky at times. There was a period where Molly went back to the United States 
and um, some of the emails I, which which I've seen, I've had access to over the years, the emails that, that Molly has sent to Jason are very much pleading in nature, urging him not to give up on love, urging him to commit to the relationship, saying that she wants to, you know, him to, to, to move the relationship onto another level. And you can understand the confusion of this young father of two. You know, he's not sure should he go ahead with the relationship. It's moving very fast. A lot of the letters that, that, that Jason had sent to Molly at this time were pleading for the relationship to continue at a much slower pace. But that's not what Molly wanted. And eventually, Molly returned to Ireland. The relationship accelerated. They got engaged. Um, at this point, Molly said she wasn't happy living in the house that Jason had effectively built for Mags, his first wife. So that house was sold. They relocated to a housing estate in Raheen in Limerick. And then Molly started saying that she was very homesick, that she wanted to go back to the United States, and that in the United States, Jack and Sarah would have a much better quality of life. And Jason eventually agreed that they would do that. And in June 2011, um, at a lavish ceremony, which was entirely paid for, by, by Jason Corbett. Uh, Jason and Molly married um, at a former Confederate um, plantation in uh, just uh, south of Knoxville in uh, Tennessee. They moved to the United States. They lived that, as you describe it, all-American life with the big house, uh, the two cars in the driveway, the, the barbecues and the soccer and, and baseball for, for the kids and so on. Can you take me then to... August the 1st of 2015. How had Jason spent that day and, and what subsequently emerged? By August of 2015, um, there, there were problems. Um, they had all of the trappings of a happy life, but behind the front door, things were far from happy. Jason's family maintained that he was being subjected to gaslighting. And essentially that is um, efforts by one person to undermine and demean the other person to the point where their confidence and their self-belief is shaken. And it's interesting to note that just a couple of weeks after Jason and Molly married um, at Bleak House, this Confederate plantation in, in South Tennessee, Molly went to a divorce lawyer. And it's a strange thing that anyone would do immediately after getting married, that they would go to a divorce lawyer. But Molly's query was, what rights did she have to Jack and Sarah? And it was pointed out to her that because she wasn't their birth mother, she was the second wife, Jason was a widower, Jason had in the entire rights to the two children. Molly had the right to 50% of the marital property, as is the law in North Carolina, but the children remained in the custody and care of her husband in the event of any marriage breakdown. Now, the Martins family, including Tom Martins, had repeatedly asked Jason to sign effectively adoption papers that would give Molly equal rights to the two children. But for whatever reason, I think by this stage, Jason had become increasingly concerned about his wife's mental health and her increasingly bizarre behavior. And he decided he wasn't going to sign those papers. Now, 24 hours before August the 1st, there was an incident at a local party. There's a tradition here. They call it a cornhole party, which is a little bit like a kind of a build up to the harvest where an entire community gets together. A housing estate might get together. They have a barbecue. People, every, every household brings their own little food offering and they play a series of traditional games. And at that party, um, Molly subjected Jason to pretty horrific verbal abuse. Um, she you know, challenged him about his weight. 
She challenged him about the type of person he was and really humiliated him in front of all of the neighbours. And it's quite poignant that Jason left the party on his own. He went back to the house and he put his last post on social media. He went onto Facebook and he said, you know, why is it that people will believe the, the worst things that are said about you without a second thought, but they have to be persuaded to believe the good things about you. And that was the last posting that he ever did on social media. The following day, Jason was cutting the lawn and a neighbor was doing the same. They took several breaks while they were cutting the lawn. They had a couple of beers. When they had finished their work, they went into a shaded area on, on deck chairs. They had a couple of more beers. Molly joined them. And quite surprisingly, in the afternoon, um, Molly's parents arrived. And why that was surprising is that they lived in Knoxville in Tennessee, which is almost a six-hour drive from where Jason and Molly were living at Wahlberg, just outside Winston-Salem. And this trip was entirely unplanned. It was a spur-of-the-moment trip. And during the 2017 trial, we had heard that there were multiple calls, more than a dozen calls made by Molly to her parents during that trip. And when the parents arrived, Jason got up, he walked over to their car, he took their suitcases out of the boot of the car, brought them into the house for the couple. And those who witnessed the scene said it seemed to be very friendly, very amicable. A son-in-law greeting his his mother and father-in-law in the normal fashion. And that was on the evening. Uh, there was a pizza bought, um, to obviously for, for dinner. And then suddenly in the early hours of the morning, all hell broke loose. Neighbours awoke to see police cars, ambulances at the scene. Inside the house, it was a scene of carnage. Um, Jason was found naked on the floor of his bedroom on his back. He had been subjected to a savage beating. He had been struck with a metal Louisville Slugger baseball bat. He was struck with a concrete paving slab. He was beaten about the head so many times that a pathologist, Dr. Craig Nelson, told the 2017 hearing that he couldn't accurately count the number of blows that were inflicted. And in quite horrific detail, the pathologist said that when Jason's body was being lifted onto the slab in the hospital for the post-mortem examination, pieces of his skull were actually falling out of his head. Molly and Tom were at the scene. They were both uninjured. Uh, there wasn't a scratch, a bruise, a cut on either of the two, but both insisted they had acted entirely in self-defense. They claimed that Jason had attacked his wife in the early hours of the morning, that Tom had heard the, the noise upstairs. He grabbed the metal Louisville Slugger baseball bat, which he had brought. It belonged to one of his own sons, who were now adults, and he had brought the baseball bat all the way from Knoxville to uh, Jason Corbett's house as a present for young Jack. Uh, he said that because Jack was out playing with his friends, he didn't get a chance to give it to the, him, give the present to him that evening. And it was in the bedroom when he heard the disturbance upstairs. He grabbed the metal baseball bat, ran upstairs, and he claimed that Jason was holding Molly by the neck. Obviously, a violent interaction began at that stage, which ended with Jason being horrifically beaten. Uh, his blood was all over the bedroom. His blood was in the hallway. His blood was in the bathroom. Um, his blood was even on, splattered on parts of the stairs. The emergency services were notified. 
what was interesting, there were several key factors um, emerged that very quickly turned this from a case of potential domestic violence into a case of second degree murder. The paramedics that arrived at the scene noted that Jason Corbett's body was cold to the touch. That would not be the case if they were noted notified immediately after the assault. And the conclusion was that uh, Tom and Molly had waited for some considerable period of time before alerting the emergency services to ensure that Jason was dead. A subsequent blood spatter analysis of the scene indicated that Jason was lying in bed when the first blow was struck, that he was lying on the floor helpless when he was also beaten and that at least one of the blows that were um, aimed at his head uh, was struck after he was already dead. Um, Outside, uh, Molly was wearing a kind of a fur coat and blue pattern pyjamas. Two different police officers had to approach Molly and tell her to stop rubbing her neck. They had noticed that she was vigorously rubbing her neck Both police officers had to go and ask her to stop doing that. Um, Both Tom and Molly were taken to the police station where they made statements and both were adamant that they had acted entirely in self-defense. And despite the fact that there was no mark, no bruise, no scratch on either of the two of them, despite the fact that according to their own story, they were just involved in this desperate life and death struggle with an Irishman who weighed about 17 to 18 stone and would have been very, very strong. Can you take us through just the the legal uh, proceedings then that have that have taken place? So we we had a trial. When was that, and how long did it last? Okay, so so Jason's body was found. It was recovered from the property in August of 2015. Um, within a couple of weeks, the investigation switched from a potential domestic violence dispute to a second degree murder investigation. Um, in 2016, Tom and Molly Martins uh, were charged with second-degree murder. In uh, June of 2017, there was a pre-trial hearing um, in advance of a full murder trial at Davidson County Superior Court. And that murder trial opened in July of 2017, where there was a total of 23 different witnesses over almost four weeks. Um, And really what the case hinged on, and the case was before Judge David Lee, and it hinged on forensic evidence. It hinged on the, the interpretation of the blood spatter evidence, which indicated that, far contrary to what Tom and Molly were saying, that Jason was in bed when the first blow was struck, that he was lying helpless on the ground when he was struck again, and that uh, he was struck even after he was dead. The fact that uh, he was cold to the touch when the paramedics arrived, which indicated that there had been a deliberate delay in notifying them about the incident. And even more bizarrely, it emerged during the trial that an analysis, a toxicological analysis of Jason's blood had revealed traces of trazodone, which was a sedative. And what's interesting about it is that Jason Corbett was not prescribed Trazodone, but Trazodone was given to his wife Molly just four to five days before he was beaten to death. I remember when the jury were sent out, all of the reporters in court thought that it could be three or four days given the length of the trial and the amount of evidence. But the jury were actually back just a couple of hours later uh, with the unanimous conviction. Tom and Molly were immediately taken into custody. They were let out of the courtroom and the prosecutors stood up and said they were ready to go to sentencing straight away. Um, the defence had no objection 
and they were sentenced literally within, I'd say, 45 minutes. Both received the guideline sentence, which was 20 to 25 years in prison um, for a second degree murder conviction. Outside the court, Michael Ernest, who is the brother-in-law of um, Tom Martin's and Molly's uncle, he described the conviction as a travesty of justice. And he said that he confirmed that there would be a full appeal um, launched immediately. So that appeal process took time. The Court of Appeal, by a two to one margin, had ruled in favour of Tom and Molly Martins and over effectively recommended the overturning of the conviction. That was challenged by the um, district attorney. Uh, the, the Attorney General here in North Carolina, and it went to the North Carolina Supreme Court, where in March of last year, so that's March of 2021, uh, the, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that the conviction should be overturned. Essentially, that was the end of it. From the state's point of view, they had to make a decision either to ignore, allow Molly and Tom to walk free or to make the decision to go for a retrial. And uh, towards the tail end of last year, it was confirmed that a retrial would take place. My thanks to Ralph Regal for joining me today from North Carolina. I'm Fionn Sheen, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Garrett Mulhall, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from ABC and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts.